past the midway point. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. We'll do Ephesians chapter 5 over the weekend. And then next Wednesday, we'll close it out in Ephesians chapter 6. And so it's been a, a really different kind of a, a thing for us as a fellowship to be able to go through a book like this with so many different people teaching from it. But I think it has been very enlightening. I know that for us as a staff, it's been really interesting just seeing what, what God has brought out in each chapter from the different perspective. You know, every time that you go through the Word of God, it, it's new, it's, it's exciting, it's interesting, it's different. There's something there every time that, that you never saw before, and I think that's even more so highlighted when you know that you've taught through it or you've listened to a teaching by it or from it, and then you hear somebody else do it, and they do it differently, and, and still God speaks to you, and it, it's just been a real blessing for us. But tonight, as I said, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go ahead and read through the first five verses, and actually the first six, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just jump right into some stuff. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Heavenly Father, once again, we just commit this time to you. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, that you would give us your wisdom, your understanding to rightly divide your word. And I pray that you would give me your words to speak and not my own. We also pray that everything that is of you would, would just sink deeply into our hearts and everything that is not of you, Lord, would just fall by the wayside tonight. And so we give you this time, we give you all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of the things that, that wasn't there when Paul actually wrote this letter, which is what it is, it's a letter or an epistle to the church in Ephesus, are chapters and verses. So when Paul wrote it, he didn't break it up into all these different sections. That came later. But one of the things that you can clearly see as it was broken up this way is that the first three chapters are a little bit different in tone and, and in message than the last three chapters of this book. For the first three chapters, it's been real, real heavy and rich in doctrine, in the blessings, in the standing that we have in Christ as believers in Jesus Christ. So these are some of the places that, that God is taking us to. These are some of the, the gifts and the blessings that have been poured out upon us. And he starts there to give us uh, kind of like a, uh, an understanding of who we are already so that then he can bring us in these last three chapters to who we are now called to be. And so the first three chapters, like I said, are, are very, very heavy and rich in doctrine and blessings. And these last three chapters, starting in chapter 4, are chapters that are given more to exhortation, to, to live rightly. This is what it's supposed to look like. Now that you know who you are in Christ, now that you know all of these blessings that have been bestowed upon you, and this mission that you've been given to be an ambassador of Christ, now what is that supposed to look like? So what are we supposed to be doing? What are the things that we're supposed to be saying? The things that, that are supposed to be evident in our lives? And so it's these last three chapters that start to give us an understanding of how we are to live. 
And sometimes as Christians, we get too caught up in either one section or the other, not just in this book, but I think in our lives. We can get caught up on one side or the other. Either we're, we're heavy in the understanding and the growing and the learning of, and the knowledge of the Word of God, or we're very, very heavy in trying to live rightly, trying to live holy. And the problem with doing just one or, or the other is that they're impossible without doing them together. You have to do both. You need to understand the word of the Lord. You need to understand the, the blessing, the high standing that we have been given so that we can then fulfill the high calling that has been placed upon our lives. So we need to understand the grace that God has bestowed upon us already, the, the unmerited favor, the things that we didn't deserve, that God just poured into our hearts, poured upon our lives, so that then we can understand what it is that he's calling us to do. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us accomplish both parts. And again, they have to both be done together. But Paul, beginning in verse 1 here, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he starts here by saying, a prisoner of the Lord. Now we know that he's a prisoner in Rome. He's in a Roman prison, but he doesn't consider himself to be a prisoner of Rome. He considers himself to be a prisoner of Jesus, a prisoner of the Lord. Because as we studied over the weekend, he knows that he's still on the clock, so to speak, as a missionary, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, wherever he goes, whatever it is that he's doing. And he also knows, he understands that it's not always easy to do that. That some of the workplaces that we find ourselves in, some of the family gatherings, some of the, the social places that we find ourselves in, some of these places are very, very difficult for us to exhibit Christ-like behavior in. And Paul gets that. He understands that. And that's one of the reasons that I believe that he puts in there that he's a prisoner. We already know this. The, the church in Ephesus, they already knew that before he had even written the letter, they had already heard. Before they had even opened the letter to begin reading, they knew where it was coming from. And yet, multiple times throughout the letter, he reminds them that he's a prisoner of the Lord. And he's not doing that to, to, to be falsely humble, you know, to... to pat himself on the back, he's doing it as a reminder that, look, I am in a bad place and I can still worship the Lord. I can still understand that there's a calling upon my life and that I'm still blessed, that God is still pouring out his grace upon me even in the midst of this struggle. And so he knows being a Christian isn't easy. And honestly, I think it's more meaningful for me, maybe, maybe not for you, but for me, to hear from Paul about suffering and walking worthy and all of the, the gracious blessings that have been bestowed upon us while he's a prisoner. It's a lot easier for me to hear about the, the gracious blessings while he's going through a difficult time than it would be for me to hear from Paul, the multimillionaire evangelist. You know, because Paul, the multimillionaire evangelist, if he was sharing these same things with me, I would look at his life and say, you know, yeah, it's easy for you because look at what God has blessed you with. But that's not the ministry that God had given to Paul. Paul had this ministry from the Lord that as we studied over the weekend, that was going to involve suffering. You know, when he first came to know Jesus Christ, when Jesus, you know, came to meet him on the road to Damascus, and he's then spending time waiting, waiting for Ananias, this man that God would send, Ananias has a conversation with God. And in this conversation, Ananias hears directly from the Lord that one of the things that he's going to tell Paul are the things that he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so when Paul's writing all of these things, it's so much more meaningful for me because I can see that he really was talking about these things, the gloriousness of God, the grace of God, the blessings of God, while in the midst of some of the most challenging times of his life. And if you can really honestly be so focused upon the goodness of God when you see the badness of your life, like, isn't that a, a great example to follow? Isn't that a, a great person to hear from? And so Paul has just finished giving us this great understanding of how much grace has been extended to us before he even starts to talk about the responsibilities. And it's important for us to be mindful of these blessings of God in our lives as we desire to live right. Because it helps us to understand one thing. And that is that the one who is blessing us with every good thing, that's Jesus, it's God, our Heavenly Father, that, that the triune God, the one who is blessing us with every good thing we have, is the same one that's asking us to do these things His way. In James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, it's kind of a lengthy passage, but, but I think the, the whole of it is important for, for us tonight. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so just up to this point, he says, Blessed is a man who endures temptation for when he's been approved, for when he has come through on the other side, having been tested, having been found faithful, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then to let no one say, when we go through temptation, this is God tempting me. Because God doesn't do that. God can't be tempted by evil. And if he can't be tempted by evil, why would he tempt us with evil? That's just not the way God works. But each one who is tempted, he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. When we are left to our own devices, to our own thoughts, to our own ideas, to our own feelings, the feelings especially, when we are left to our own devices, we fall into temptation. And it's not just we're tempted, we fall in that temptation. We give way to sin, because we are drawn away by our own desires. And so it's important that we get to verse 16 in James chapter 1 when he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so what he's saying here is don't be deceived by any of these other things. Don't be tempted by your own emotions, by your own thoughts, by your own desires. You need to understand that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God the Father is the one that is giving us these good things, and he's also the one that is giving us the instructions to do this correctly. He's the one that is giving us the, the rule book, the guide book, to be able to live rightly. And it's not because God wants to take the fun out of life. It's because God wants us to enjoy life and to have joy more abundant. You know, as we studied in chapter 3 over the weekend, that 
to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Like this is the God that we are talking about, the one and only true living God, the one who gives every good and perfect gift, and he's the one that's saying, look, I want you to stay within these boundaries for your own good, for your own benefit, for your own safety, so that you won't be hurt and so that you won't hurt those around you. It doesn't mean that if you do all of these things the way that God has laid it out, that your life is going to be perfect and without suffering. In fact, it might even mean that you're going to go through more suffering, but the beauty of it is that you will be exactly where God wants you to be, so you will be completely and entirely fulfilled in whatever it is that you're doing. And that's God's desire for us, to be fulfilled in that, to be able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are walking with him and that we are so close to him that we are so filled with his love, with his Holy Spirit, with the fullness of God that we are able to pour that into other people's lives instead of pouring ourselves. You know, I had a conversation with someone over the weekend and we were talking about golf and, and I was just explaining to him that, that I was going through a hot streak, you know, just this, this period of time where I've just been playing really, really well and just amazing. And one of the things that we talked about was that it's getting back to the simplicity of getting out of the way. You know, just like, just getting out of the way. And he said, you know, I've been going through the same kind of deal. And, and I'm, I'm worried because I know that at some point I'm going to get in the way. You know, and for me, at some point in, in my golf game, and that actually happened very, very recently, I got in the way. And I started trying to tweak this and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to change this. And you lose it all. And when we do that, at least I do, Spiritually. That God is trying to get me to the simplicity of who he is, the simplicity of being filled with the Spirit, and just being surrendered and submitted to everything that he wants to do, and things are going amazing. You know, you're on a hot streak, if you will, for the Lord. You know, everything that, that you're doing, God is just blessing, not you necessarily, but he's blessing others through the things that you're doing, and then all of a sudden you say, well, you know, maybe I could tweak this, maybe I could make this a little bit better. And then we get a hold of it and we ruin it. We just completely mess it up. And that's what James was talking about. That's what Paul was talking about. Is to be focused upon God. And to be in this place of understanding the high calling that we've been given. But on the heels of understanding the high position that we have in Christ. That that God wants to do all of these things through us, and he wants to do all these things in us, if we'll just allow him, if we will just get out of the way. And so James let us know that everything good comes from God, including the right way to live. And so that gives us an understanding as we come back to Ephesians chapter 4, why it is that now we need to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Now that we have this good grasp of how blessed and how privileged we are, we get to walk worthy of these blessings and privileges by doing a few things. And the first set of things is to walk in lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, to bear with one another in love, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And these are all super, super important in every relationship that you have every single relationship that we have, but especially inside the body of Christ. 
But I would suggest to you that oftentimes what happens is that we try to exhibit all of these things in the world, and then we come inside the body of Christ, and we throw them out the window. And we expect everyone else to bend over backwards for us without trying to exhibit all of these things to them. You know, I can't tell you how many times, how many examples, real-life living examples there have been inside various churches, but even inside of our own fellowship, where things happen inside the body of Christ between one believer and another that would never take place between a believer and somebody that's in the world. Things that we would do to each other inside a church, bad things, you know, whether it's gossip, whether it's holding someone to a standard that's unattainable, whether it's holding a grudge, being bitter, being angry, whatever it is, all of these things happen and we do it to each other inside the church, but we would never dare to do that to a non-believer. Now, I'm all for high standards. I think God is all for high standards. I think Paul is letting us know here. He says to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's a high standard. But we also have to understand that we are all incapable of 100% of the time fulfilling that high standard. Jesus is the only one that is completely perfect. He's the only one that is completely worthy of all of these things. It's his righteousness. It's his holiness that's getting us into the, the family. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our own holiness, our own goodness, our own works. It's his and so it is important that we hold each other accountable. You know, that, that's the, the word that you, you hear tossed around inside of the body. To be accountable. To have an accountability partner, if you will. And it's good to have that. It's good to hold ourselves and each other to a higher standard than that of the world. Because in many cases, they don't know any better. And we've been called to live holy because God who calls us is holy, but we are also called to show grace, to show mercy, and to show love and not just receive it. And so that's why he's talking about these things, to, to be, have this attitude of lowliness and gentleness. What does that mean? To be humble. To be humble. Not to, to lord over somebody else, something that, that God is doing in your life. But to be humble about it. You know, Jesus would talk about not letting the, the one hand know what the other is doing. You know, you don't have to toot your own horn. You don't have to do your own press release about the things that, that you're doing for the kingdom of God. Just do it because you love Jesus. You don't have to tell everybody about how many people you forgave despite what they did to you. you know, I, but you hear that a lot, so much, too much, inside the church. Well, you know, so-and-so really, really did it again, and they keep messing up, but, you know, I, I just love them, and, and I keep ministering to them, and I just keep being there. And you start name-dropping. These are bad things. These are not things that should happen inside the body of Christ. They have this lowliness, this gentleness. The gentleness. You know, meekness is not weakness. That's an important thing. It's, it's a pithy little phrase, but it's important for us to remember Meekness is not weakness. This gentleness. You know, one of the best descriptions that I've heard of meekness is to have the opportunity for vengeance and not take it. To have the, the opportunity to, to really pay somebody back for something and not take it. 
Not because you couldn't do it, not because the opportunity wasn't there, but because it wasn't your place to do it. To have this gentleness, to have long suffering, that means that there are times where there are going to be people that you're going to have to suffer long with and suffer long because of. And there are so many, so many people in our lives outside of the body of Christ that we're so willing to do that. Well, you know, I, I just, my boss just, they don't know any better. Or my boss just keeps saying these things or my boss does this. And, but they're such a good person. And so, you know, I just, I've, I've been sticking with them. Or, you know, it's been such a difficult time for, for my, my cousin. And they've just been going through such a, a hard time in their life. And so when they say these things about me or when they steal from me or whatever, and, and we, we long suffer. And inside the church, somebody takes your seat. And it's like the end of the world. Because that's who we become when we're left to our own devices. But he says, bearing with one another in love to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And he says to keep it, to preserve it. We don't have to create it. Creating unity, creating the bond of peace, that is almost impossible for us. It is almost impossible. You look at, just to give you a, a real basic example, look at how many people win the Nobel Peace Prize that never brought peace to anything. But why do they get the Peace Prize? Because they attempted to bring peace. It's so difficult to create peace. But God is telling us here, through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Paul's hand, that we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to keep it, to hold on to it. And he says to do it with the Holy Spirit because that's the only way that it's possible. We don't have to create the peace. Only God can do it, and only God can keep it. So that means that we have to be filled with the Spirit. That means we have to be following the Lord to be able to ensure that we can preserve the unity and the bond of peace. And so it, it's important for us. I, I, I really didn't plan to spend that much time on that section, but, but I think that, that it's really important for us to under, understand the way that we treat each other inside of the body of Christ should be even better than the way that we treat anybody else outside the body of Christ. I mean, ideally it should be the same across the board, but, but definitely why would we call someone a brother or a sister and then treat them the way that we do inside the body. We have to be better than that. We are one body in Christ with one Lord, and we are all equal in the eyes of our Father, and we need to be equal in the eyes of each other as well. It's not for us to exalt one over the other, but it's for us to all understand our frailties and to understand the greatness and the goodness of God. And if we can just do that, if we can keep our eyes focused upon him, then it becomes so much easier to keep the right perspective. And that, again, is why Paul spent three chapters talking to us about the gloriousness of God, about his grace towards us, about all the blessings that we have been given, the gifts that we have been given. So that then he could get to the hard stuff and say, look, because of everything that you have, you should live right. You should live better, as we're going to see in a little bit. But he continues on in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so that first verse there, verse 7, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That means that every single one of us has been given gifts, not just one, but God has given each one of us gifts, plural, multiple, according to the measure of Christ's gift. That means that every child of God has been gifted different ways and in varying amounts, but we have all been gifted. And so, therefore, he says, and then he goes into this section, and, and it's not a direct quotation from Psalm 68, but it, it's kind of like a, a, a cover or a play off of it, if you will. Because what he's talking about here comes from Psalm 68, verses 18 through 20, where it says, You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. And so one of the things that that if you really read those two passages closely, you see that in Ephesians he says that he ascended on high, led captivity captive, and that he gave gifts to men. But when you get to Psalm 68, you see the, the original, it says that God has received gifts from among men. But one of the things that holds true in both is that at all times the Lord is daily loading us with his benefits. You know, that's what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then you go to Psalm 68 and you see there in verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. The most important part isn't a about whether this was directly quoted, whether it was right or wrong, the most important part here is to understand that God is trying to get a point across in two different places that he is loading us with benefits, that he's pouring his grace out upon us. One of the other discussions that comes up a lot of times in this section is what does it actually mean when he's talking about descending into the lower parts of the earth? Now, there's two primary schools of thought. I'm going to give you both of them. We're not going to dig into it. I'm just going to give them to you. If you want to do more research on it, you can. If you have more questions, we are always available for that. But the two things that he could be talking about are either Jesus coming to live in the flesh here on the earth, which in order to do that, he had to descend from heaven, which is where he was and where he's returned to, where he reascended to. The other school of thought is that he's descending into Hades to bring up those who were in Abraham's bosom. Now, if you go through the book of Luke, you see a passage, a story that Jesus is telling, and it's not a parable. He, in, when he's doing a parable, he says, it, it'll actually say, and he tells them a parable, and then it goes into the parable. But when he's talking about this man, Lazarus, and the rich man, he doesn't say anything about this being a parable. This is just a story. This is a real-life event. And so he talks about this place called Abraham's bosom, where they, before Jesus came to live, to die, to be resurrected, before all of this happened, this is where the righteous would go. They would go to a place called Abraham's bosom. And so it was a part of the same area. It was in Hades, but it was not the place of suffering. 
And so, like I said, we're not going to dig too deep into that tonight. We're not going to dig into it at all. But those are the two different possibilities. Either way, Jesus left the glory of heaven to descend. And then after he had descended, he ascended back up to where he came from, to where he belongs in heaven. And as he ascended, he gave gifts to us. As he went to prepare a place for us, which is an amazing gift, he still gave us even more things while we wait for that day. While we wait for the most awesome gift, which is to spend all of eternity in his presence, in a place that he's preparing for us, he's given us these gifts to be exhibited here on the earth. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us spiritual gifts. Even before all of that, he's given us the gift of salvation. So he goes through there, and, and then he jumps down in verse 11. He says, He himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he goes through here, and this is what we would oftentimes called the offices of the church. So these are, are different areas, different things that not everyone has been called to, and even somebody that has been called to one has not necessarily been called to all the others. And when you go through in the original language, which I have not personally done myself, I have just studied from those who have, but when you go through the original language, there are actually four different sections here. It's not five. It looks like five, but the last two, if you will, pastor and teacher, those are actually one and the same. So when you go through in the original language, you'll see the, the way that the punctuation is laid out in the verbiage that it's actually four. And so the first one is the apostles. Those were direct contact. Those were people that had directly seen the ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus had called them to himself. You know, Paul was one born out of due season, as he would write, but Paul had received this vision directly from Jesus. He had spent time, and Jesus had actually taken him through basically everything that he'd taken the other guys through, but he did it one-on-one -on -one with Paul. And so the first one was the apostles. The second one is the prophets. And this isn't just a reference to those in the Old Testament, the prophetic books, as we're going through on most Wednesday nights, the book of Ezekiel and, and some of the other prophetic books from the Old Testament, but prophetic word is also something that can be given not about some new revelation or, or some new epistle or, or some new doctrine, because the Bible's very clear that none of those things are right or good, but what a prophetic word can be today and a gift and office that God still uses is to be able to speak the truth of the word of God directly into someone's life. You know, maybe you've experienced it, maybe you haven't. I know personally I have, where there have been times where you're just going through something and then somebody just comes up and they just want to share a word with you. And, and sometimes they'll say it like that in a Christianese way. I just, I just have a word that, that God wants me to share with you. Sometimes they'll give you a verse. Sometimes uh, they'll just be praying with you and, and it's just something that, the, that they said as they were praying with you. But it's just God ministering directly to your heart exactly where you're at with exactly what you needed at that moment. That's a prophetic word. And that's still something that takes place nowadays. 
The third one is evangelists. And this is to actually go out and to, to preach, if you will. There's a big difference between preaching and teaching. We'll talk about teaching in a little bit. But to preach is actually to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To let the sinners know that, that we're sinners too, but that we've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, by his blood, that we have now been brought into this right relationship with God. And so we preach that. We take that out. And that is for really everybody. That is for everybody to, to be an evangelist where you work, to be an evangelist where you live, to be an evangelist where you shop, to be an evangelist everywhere you go. And then the fourth office is the pastor-teacher. A pastor is a shepherd. That's the word that, that often gets thrown around. Basically, a, a guard. It's like a watchdog over the body, over the fellowship that God has entrusted to that person. And so the office of pastor, in, pastor teacher, from a pastoral sense, is to shepherd, to guard the flock. You know, as you go through the, what we would call the pastoral epistles, the, the letters that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, you see these exhortations to guard what has been given to you and then to watch over it, not to let these wolves come into the church, not to allow false doctrine to come into the church, but to guard and to protect. And so that's part of the, the pastoral side of it. And then to be a pastor teacher, to teach God's word. We are extremely blessed here. You know, some people don't understand how truly blessed we are in this fellowship because Pastor Charlie is a tremendous pastor and a tremendous teacher of the Word. You know, we, we talked a little bit as we, we prepared to go through this series through the, the six chapters of Ephesians. You know, we, we don't have the time in six weeks or, or six meetings together to be able to dig in deep and to get to the heart of every little word and, and every section the way that we are able to do when Pastor Charlie is extending out a series. You know, we, he's able to bring out so much and God has given him this wisdom. And so this is the teaching part. But it's not just to teach you for academic sake. It's not just to teach you so that he can continue to, to grow as a teacher and to get better at expounding upon the Word of God. All of these offices were for one purpose, and that's verse 12, which is really the, the theme verse, if you will, for our fellowship here. And it really, in effect, should be the vision statement for any church that loves Jesus, and that is that our work, our ministry, our goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what does that mean? That means that it's actually not inside the doors of a church that most people are going to first come to Jesus Christ. That means that what is actually happening is that inside of the church, that hopefully we are all being equipped, we are being taught, we are being challenged, we are being convicted, corrected, and overall prepared and encouraged to then go out and to do the work of ministry, which is to minister, to, to impact somebody's life wherever God takes us. That ministry, to minister to someone, doesn't have to always take place inside the church. And I would actually suggest to you that a large percentage of it actually takes place outside the doors of a church. And it's not just outside the doors of a church, but inside of a home fellowship. It's outside of any of that. 
just in our interactions one-on-one, maybe two-on-two, you know, just being able to, to have conversations about life. And gradually, if your life is so about Jesus, then if you're having a conversation with somebody else about life, Jesus is just going to naturally pop up into the conversation. And we don't have to tweak it and find a way to, to stick it in there every time. God takes care of it. We just have to be faithful. And it comes back to being equipped. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means for the strengthening, for the encouraging, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then he says, for how long this is supposed to take place. In verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, you just keep doing this because that is not going to be attainable until we reach heaven. So he says that this is supposed to happen all the time because we are not here on the earth all going to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's unfortunately just not going to happen. But that's how long we are supposed to do all of these things. That's how long we as the saints, as the body of Christ, are supposed to be doing the work of ministry out in the world. We're supposed to be doing it until he calls us home, until he takes us to heaven. And we're supposed to be trying to not just plant the little seeds, although that's important, but to continue to be faithful to water those seeds, to come back, to, to be a source of inspiration, if you will, but also to be that, that source of challenge, accountability, that we would hold each other to high standards, but do it in love, that we would be able to, as iron sharpens iron, sharpen the countenance of our friends of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that it's not enough to just say, wow, you know, God really did all these things in me and my coworker came to Jesus and then I never talked to them again the whole time that I was there. Well, yeah, that's awesome that you brought them to Jesus and that now they're, they're a part of the body, but now that's one more opportunity for you to do something else, something different, a different part of ministry, and that's to encourage that person to help equip them, to help prepare them so that they can turn around and go witness and share and minister to somebody else's life. And when things are done rightly, when the body of Christ is working well, as we're going to see in a little bit, the body of Christ continues to multiply and to grow and to be strengthened. And we are able to strengthen those weakened areas, those weakened people, those people that, that might be struggling at one time or another, that might feel defeated but we're able to edify, to build up, to strengthen, to train the body of Christ. The church has a purpose. And really, in fact, it has two purposes. This place, this physical meeting place, the first one, and it always should be, is to worship God. That's the first thing. That's the most important thing. That's the primary reason that we gather together in this place, is to worship God. And the secondary purpose is to train and prepare and to be equipped. To be equipped for the work of the ministry that takes place everywhere God takes us. And there's a lot of bad stuff out there in the world. You know, you get into to verse 14 and he talks about all of these different things that are happening. There's a lot of junk that's being spewed out even from behind pulpits these days. And some do it intentionally, as he writes here, by trickery, cunning craftiness, deceitful plotting. But others 
just weren't trained correctly. There are others that, that just didn't have the benefit that we have here in this place to grow and to be taught the Word of God. Some people were just taught wrong. But either way, if we're not careful to be rooted and grounded in love, to be filled with the Spirit of God, and to prayerfully compare the things that are being spoken against the Word of God, then we will, just like he says here, be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You hear something, you're like, whoa, I, I never heard that before. And, and then it's, it's like a life-changing event until you hear something else. And then, whoa, but that's so different than what I just heard. And that's a life-changing event. And pretty soon you're a pinball going back and forth. And that's what he's talking about, that we need to be rooted and grounded, that we need to be equipped, we need to be prepared to go out into the world and to share the gospel. So that not only will we be effective in that, but so that the enemy will not be effective in swaying us as we are going out to do the work of the ministry. It's important that we not become confused or discouraged or defeated in the doctrines of the Bible. You know, I was, I was talking to somebody earlier today and and I honestly don't know if it's true or not, but it, but it had to do with a different religion and, and their sacred text. And he said that, you know, he had read through parts of it and it was really, really strange for him and, and that he had asked someone from that faith what this particular section meant. And that the, the guy told him, oh no, I can't tell you what that means. You need to go ask, you know, the, the higher up in the faith what that means because we're not allowed to interpret it. That's not the way that God wants to work it here. God is trying to speak to each one of us. This is a part of it, hopefully a, a solid part of it, to equip us as one body, as a whole, so that we're all learning the same lesson at the same time, but this isn't the extent of it. There should be some lessons that are taking place in our lives day by day as God is speaking just directly one-on-one -on -one to us in our relationship as well. And if we're doing both of those things and we're still prayerfully comparing everything that we hear to the Word of God, then we will be fully equipped for everything that God desires us to do. And he continues on, though, in, in verse 15, he says, But instead of all these things, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And the only way for us to really grow up, to mature in the faith, to mature as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to do it in the truth and in love. To speak the truth in love, that means that we are challenged by the truth, but we're, it's done lovingly. That we are encouraged to be better. That we're not encouraged to be defeated. That we encourage one another. That we build each other up. That we grow up together. We grow up together. You know, how many times do you hear uh, stories, and maybe we even tell them, yeah, you know, the people that I grew up with, and as we were growing up, we, we used to do these things. And sometimes they're saying things that they're still doing 20 years later that they didn't grow up. And sometimes that happens inside the church spiritually as well, is that we don't grow up. You know, people use the phrase, put on your big boy pants. Sometimes the truth hurts, right? Right? 
The truth can be a very, very painful thing at times. Even when it's done correctly and spoken in love, it can still be extremely painful. I cannot even begin to tell you how many times the truth of the Word of God has been spoken into my life in such a way that it convicts my heart, corrects me, humbles me, and hurts me because of my shortcomings, my failures. And yet at the end of it, it, it produces the fruit of righteousness. Because some, some of those things, those are the greatest lessons because it hurts so much. But we could see the love in the other person's heart as they shared it with us. And we could see the hurt in them because it hurt them to have to tell us whatever it is that needed to be corrected in our hearts, in our lives, that it was memorable. So that the next time we were about to slip into that temptation, we remembered the hurt that we experienced and the hurt that we saw in their, their face, in their life. And that just was a small thing in comparison to the hurt that we caused our father. So we, we ha in order to grow up in the body, we have to speak the truth in love. But then he continues there and he, he talks about this whole body. And when the body is functioning properly, it expands. It, he says that it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When the body is working properly, the body of Christ expands and it grows. And it grows stronger in love. So obviously, if the body of Christ, if whatever fellowship it is, whatever ministry it is, if it is shrinking and dying, then there is obviously something that is not functioning properly. And we need to be faithful to look for what that is. Because God desires to raise up those that would strengthen those areas. God desires for this body to work together. From whom the whole body, verse 16, Verse 16, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. It means everything has to work together and everybody has to pull their own weight. Everybody has to put something into it according to the effective working. That's the only way that it works effectively by which every part does its share. And when it's working rightly, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's an amazing and yet simple principle all at the same time. That if, if it's not working right, if the body is not functioning correctly, if, if some of us are slacking it, then the body as a whole is going to feel that hindrance. But if we are all working towards whatever it is that God has placed in front of us, then things go so smooth. Not without problem, but smooth. There's a difference between smooth and easy. Smooth, you know, you can, you can move something that's really heavy and, and it goes smoothly, but it goes so slowly because it's so heavy. So it, that's the way it is. That's the picture is that sometimes it feels like you're pushing something uphill and it's smooth because God is preparing it and God is still doing most of the work, but it's heavy to get it going, but it's smooth. And then there are times that we... We start to get a little too involved in it and we start taking it out of God's hands and, and the body starts to function improperly because we're not looking to God, we're looking to ourselves and we start veering off of that smooth path that God has created and we're bumping around in the rocks and the weeds and, and it becomes that much more difficult and that's when things die. 
we have an opportunity all the time to correct that. And it only takes a moment, it takes an instant to then be able to recognize it and say, God, we have gotten in the way. Help us get back on track. And God is always faithful. And that leads us to this last section here where he's talking about walking differently. And in verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, because of everything that we've just talked about in these first 16 verses of this chapter, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. The first thing there, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. There were things that we used to do before we became Christians that we know better than now. Things that we know need to be different. We need to do them differently. He's not trying to, to sugarcoat it. He says, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You should be walking differently than what you were walking before you came to Jesus. And then he says, in the futility of their mind, not in the emptiness of their mind, not in the, the lack of knowledge, but he says, in the futility of their mind. There are a ton of brilliant thinkers out there that are not children of God. There are a lot of brilliant ideas that have come from non-believers. But the end of their thoughts is futility, is what he's saying. That there's no hope and there's no permanent future of glory for whatever it is that's going on in their heads. Because they are doing it without God. And so he says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be left to just our own thoughts, our own devices. Having our understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God. We know better than that now because we've experienced God, because we've come to know him. And so now hopefully that ignorance that is in them is gone from us and our hearts are no longer blinded. You know, the, the songs that we sing, they're, they're not just meant to be catchy tunes and catchy phrases. Like these are meaningful things that we are trying to sing to the Lord and also to be reminded of. One of the songs that we sang tonight, Open the Eyes of My Heart, that's, that's really what we're talking about here. Help us not be blinded in our hearts to what it is that God wants to do. That the eyes of our hearts would be open and receptive to whatever it is that God wants to do and wherever it is that he wants to take us and however he wants to accomplish whatever he's trying to get done in us that we're just sold out for him so that, God, you have complete and total control. And then the last part there, he's, he goes in verse 19, he says, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to this, this place of just being beyond feeling bad about it, that you've gotten to a place where the sin just doesn't bother you anymore. Your sin doesn't bother you anymore. He says, given over to lewdness, it, that you would do it out in the open without any fear of anybody's opinions or anything else, to work all uncleanness with greediness. It means that you're doing all of these terrible things, and you just want to do more and more and more terrible things. And it's to sin without regret or conviction or shame. And sometimes that can even creep its way into the heart of a believer. You know, there, there's a story that, that's told of a young man that, that comes up to a pastor after, after he's shared a sermon, and he says, you know what, pastor, I, I just have to tell you that, that some of the things that you talked about today, 
I, I really just don't feel bad about. You know, there, there are some of these things that you were talking about as being sinful and evil and wrong before the Lord. I just really don't feel bad about those. If they're sins, then, then I, I really don't feel bad about them. And the pastor responds by saying, does a dead man feel when an 800-pound weight is dropped on him? Because you're spiritually dead, that's why you've gone beyond feeling. Because you're spiritually dead. And, and that, I mean, that hits. That hits home. That hits home for me personally because there are times where I can get to that place. You know, where maybe it's just that, that same thing that keeps happening over and over again in your life. Maybe it's uh, an attitude that left unchecked just continues to grow. You know, they, I was sharing with somebody a, a couple of weeks back that, that at different points in my life, there are different people that God has brought into my life that I have failed with because for whatever reason, my flesh does not click with their whole being. Whether it's their spirit, their, the flesh, whatever it is, my flesh just can't get past them. And there's a young man that, that now attends a different fellowship, not because of we had it out or anything. He, he's going because he's doing the work of the Lord. But when he first started attending a Bible study that I was leading, from the moment that I heard his voice two rooms away, I was done. I was just done with this guy. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to hear anything he had to say. Even when he had something good to say, I still didn't want to hear it. When he had a great idea, we were not going to do that. We were going to do something else. And this was while I was teaching a Bible study. I was leading this Bible study that this guy was attending. But for whatever reason, I was in the way. And I just couldn't get past that. And it got so bad that I became numb to it. I was completely immune to it. I felt like it was okay. Like I was fine and there must have been a problem with him. The reality was that when God finally broke my heart and my stubbornness and my pride, the guy turned out to be an amazing friend, an absolute amazing friend, someone that God used so tremendously in my life to challenge me, to change me, to hold me accountable, and just to be a, an amazing brother in the Lord. But I had allowed myself to become numb. And so the pastor said, does a dead man feel when an 800-pound weight is dropped on him? We need to evaluate our lives. We have to evaluate the things that are taking place, the attitudes, the things that we do, the places that we go, the things that we say, the thoughts that we think. Are we becoming numb in some area that we knew at one point was wrong, but now it doesn't feel so wrong because we've become numb to it? He says, you have not so learned Christ. He goes on in verse 20. He says, you haven't learned Christ like this. You have learned something different and not just learned about Christ. He says, you have not so learned Christ. You have not so grown in a relationship with Jesus in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We have learned Christ. If we are children of God, we have learned Christ. Not just about him, but we have learned him. We know him. You go back into Exodus and you see that Moses is talking to God and he says, God, I just want to see you. I just want to see you. And God says, you, you can't see me. 
He says, but God, if I could just see you, if I could just know you, if I could just know you intimately, like to really get to the heart of who you are, then I can take these people wherever it is that you want me to take them. And God says, you know, I'm going to shield you in the cleft of this rock, in this hole of the rock. And you will be able to look upon the glory of my back, basically, as I walk past. The glory of the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the love of God. We have not so learned Christ to be like the world. We've learned Christ. We've learned something different. And then he gives us the order here. And it has to be done in this order all the time. To put off the old man first. To renew the mind second. And then to put on the new man. In, in a sense, it's almost fake it till you make it. And it's not really that. But I, I think that that's something that, that will help us remember it. Because it's another one of those pithy little phrases. Just a, a quick thing. Fake it till you make it. The first step is to put off the old man. So once we recognize, once God has put in our hearts, hey, look, this is something that's not right. This is something that has to change. Okay, we need to stop doing that immediately. Not find all the, the how-tos and 10 steps to, but okay, I just need to stop this. This needs to change. The second step is to renew the mind, to think differently about whatever that is. To think differently about it. It means to consciously think, okay, this is not okay. This is not right. This is not what God has for me. And then the last thing is that we will be able to put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. That the new man can't fit over the old man. The new man can't fit while we're still thinking the same about all of these things. The new man has to be fit on top of someone that God is transforming. Someone that is thinking differently about life. That is looking at life differently. So we start by removing ourselves from the sins that we fall into. Then we try to mentally think out why it's wrong. Why is this wrong? Where does it say that this is wrong in the Bible? What principle in the Word of God does this go against? And why does it have to be different? And then we are able to really have our lives supernaturally transformed by God to put on the new man. And God wants to help us change, but he's not going to force his way into controlling our lives. We have to submit and surrender to it. And then Paul closes out this chapter with a lot of very, very simple and straightforward exhortations. In verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Again, to speak truth, to be honest, to not lie, especially inside the body. Just let that be a constant thought for us, especially in here, among brothers and sisters in Christ, that we want to speak truth. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. He doesn't say not to be angry, but he says to be angry and do not sin. To be angry for the right things, for the things of God. And then, on top of that, don't let the anger dwell in your heart and turn into a bitterness that the devil can use to cause division. How many people leave churches every week, probably, around the world? How many people leave churches because of a root of bitterness? 
something that happened, something they disagreed with, something how they were somehow wronged, and they just dwell on it, and it festers, and it grows, and it turns into bitterness until finally, I just can't stand it anymore. I can't take it. These people don't know what they're doing, or these people are so not godly, whatever it is. And it was one thing that just was left unresolved, and it grew into bitterness that the devil then came in and used to stir up division. Let that not be the case for us. Then in verse 28, he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And stealing can be more than just robbing a bank. Stealing could be cheating on your taxes. Stealing could be leaving 30 minutes early from work when you didn't clock out and you you had a friend clock out for you. Stealing could be stealing time from a relationship with your spouse or with your kids. Stealing could be a lot of different things, but he says, let him who who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. So he says to go in the complete opposite direction. He doesn't just say stop stealing, but he says stop stealing, start working harder that then you can give. So don't just stop taking things that aren't yours, but now take things that are yours and give them to others. That's the attitude that he's talking about here. It's a complete reversal. And then verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. If you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. You know, Bambi, Bambi, Thumper, they got it. They understood that. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. The things that come out of our mouths, it's not just to be average. He doesn't just say, don't let anything be offensive. But he says, the things that come out of your mouth, don't let them be offensive or corrupt. But also, let them be what is good for necessary edification to build somebody up, that it may impart grace to the hearers, that they would get something good that they don't deserve from everything that we say. I'll be honest, this is very, very difficult for me. Because I am a very, very sarcastic person. And so I, I like to bring out sarcasm in people's mistakes and people's flaws. And not in my own, but in other people's mistakes and flaws. And it's a challenge. It is a challenge for me to always have this at the forefront of my mind. That it would be what is good for necessary edification and impart grace to the hearers. But it is such a blessing to be around those kind of people, right? It's so awesome to be around somebody that you always feel better after having spoken to. Even if it was about nothing of any kind of importance or consequence, but you just feel better having spent time with that person. Wouldn't it be great if we were all those people inside the body of Christ? I mean, how awesome would that be every time we got together for anything? And then he closes out the chapter. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And that's where we wrap it up. He says, Don't grieve God. Don't grieve God. He goes through all of these different things. Walk worthy, walk right, walk differently. Don't walk as the Gentiles. To do this, don't do that. But really what it comes down to is verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Think about that. 
You know, it's kind of like that catchy thing that was around a few years ago. What would Jesus do? What, what you're doing is that grieving the Spirit of God. That's a simple litmus test. What I'm doing right now, or what I'm about to do, or what I'm thinking about, is this something that is going to grieve the heart of God? Is this going to grieve the Holy Spirit? And if it is, we ought not be doing that. Let's live rightly. Let's live differently. And let's be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's all desire to be equipped and prepared, filled with the Spirit, and then take Jesus to the masses. Amen?